Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, March 3rd. We begin with another edition of Ask the Doctor with Dr. Craig Jenny, Infectious Disease Specialist from the University of Calgary. As always, Dr. Jenny takes the time to answer coronavirus questions as sent in by you, the listener. Earlier this week, Stats Canada released a grim report on Canada's economy, which shrank by a record 5.4% last year. So we dig into the report and look ahead at what's in store as we move through the next year with Kim Moody, CEO of Moody's Tax. Thursday marks HPV Awareness Day. We learn about the virus, who it affects, and what you can do to protect you and your family from contracting it. And finally, March is Nutrition Month. We speak with Calgary-based nutritionist Jennifer House for details on this year's theme titled Find Your Health. 812 on the morning news. Since the start of the pandemic, we've been posing your COVID-19 questions to our expert, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology and Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, Dr. Craig Janney. He also has a very long, wide business card. Uh, let's uh, let's get to it, Dr. Janney. Thank you so much for taking the, the time. I, w- I want to talk about something that's been in the news, and that is the imminent delivery of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine to our nation. 500,000 doses, but still uh, not getting the the green light here. So I'm I'm wondering, uh, what ties something like this up from your standpoint when other nations across the globe have given it the green light? So what's happening is these are safety checks at Health Canada. So we want to make sure that these companies are sending full data and that we are evaluating them as though they were any other drug, that we're not going to rush anything, we're not going to make any assumptions. So the AstraZeneca has now been approved, and, and we hopefully will have it deployed here within the coming days. Right now there is discussion at the individual province level as to who's going to receive that vaccine. And that's because although Health Canada has said it is perfectly safe for everybody over 18, the initial clinical trial only demonstrated efficacy in people under 65. So there were people over 65, they got it, it's safe, but the numbers were a little bit small to see how protective it was. The good news is since those initial trials, more than 10 million people have received this vaccine in the UK and in other places in Europe, and it is extremely effective in those older patients as well. So we're currently updating the numbers, but unfortunately those were not submitted in the initial application for use. So it's safe to use. We know it works. The question is, can people over 65 get it, yes or no? And the data is very much leaning that, that they should be able to get it. Okay. Well, that one's an ongoing one, especially here in this province, obviously, but thanks for clearing that up. Uh, Steve just texted in a question. Uh, Doctor, I've already had COVID and five months ago we had it. Do I still need to get vaccinated? Yes. So the data that we do get from people that recovered from COVID is one, the, the immunity seems to fade in some people, not everybody, but in some people, and we have no way of predicting who it's going to fade in. So these vaccines will boost that immunity, give you the long-lasting memory. The other piece, though, is these vaccines seem to cover against those other variants better than your natural immune response. So if you were infected with the conventional strain this past summer, and now you're exposed to one of the variants that might be in the province, there's a really good chance you could be reinfected. So again, the vaccines will provide that level of protection to keep you safe from those variants that are now starting to circulate in Canada. This next one here. When my parents uh, finish getting both of their shots, should we still wear masks and stay six feet apart? Basically, can they transmit the virus to us at that point? So right now, the 
recommendations are yes. But again, these are evolving pieces of data. And there are two things that are happening. One is we're getting a much better understanding of how likely it is somebody with the vaccine uh, can still spread the virus. So we know it can happen. We're just not sure how many people. And that's because that, again, was not in that phase three clinical trial. When we designed these vaccines, the goal was, can we keep people out of the hospital? Can we keep them alive? And that's what the, the trials were designed to do. And these vaccines are extremely good at that. We did not ask everybody who received the shot, do they ever become infected and potentially spread to another person? So your grandparents would be protected, but there is a chance they could transmit the virus to, to the rest of the family. As I said, that data is evolving, but also as we get more vaccines, there's a good chance people in the family can also be vaccinated, and then it's no longer a worry. Okay, uh, here's another one. I've heard there are questions about the vaccines uh, regarding fertility. Is this still a concern, especially since there's obviously been no long-term testing with the vaccines? So the data, again, I've seen from the phase three trials is there's no impact on that. So people who were vaccinated have since been able to have children. So we, we've not seen any any numbers, any data that suggests that, that was more than just sort of rumor or social media that, that have indicated that these vaccines have any biological impact or any medical impact on the ability to have children uh, after being vaccinated. Yeah, I don't have the numbers uh, that Israel uh, is presenting when it comes to COVID-19, but this texter says, why do you think Israel's numbers are still the same as ours despite all the vaccine over there? So we have to remember that the, the virus is not running free in the community. We still have lockdowns. We still have restrictions, and that has kept the overall virus number down. When we do look at Israel, though, uh, the individual daily cases have dropped, maybe not as much as everybody had hoped or wanted, but their hospitalizations and, and intensive care unit have dropped dramatically. So the vaccines are having a very real impact on the severity of disease in the country. And now recent data in the last week or so has really shown that there is that reduction in cases as well. So reduced viral transmission in addition to simply preventing severe disease. Dr. Janney, I'm not even going to ask. We're just going to keep you, okay? Can you hang on Can you hang on for a couple more minutes and then we'll get back to you just after we do some commercials. 819 on the morning news and more time uh, with Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary. I got kind of a long one here, so try to try to keep up with us, Dr. Janney. Uh, this texter says, I'm over 65 and have loads of allergies and I'm already nervous about vaccines, but... I will take the Moderna or Pfizer, but not AstraZeneca. But if it doesn't work, then I could need another vaccine, and I'm not sure my system could handle it. What should I do? So we've not seen any reasons why, for example, the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine wouldn't work. This is a vaccine that's got more than 94%, both of these, more than 94% protection across a wide swath of age groups. What needs to happen is it's difficult to say with underlying allergies or, or, or other conditions, specifically what those allergies are. Are they anaphylactic? Or is there any history of that? So this is a perfect opportunity to ask questions to your primary health care provider. They're going to have access to your medical history. They'll know if you're on any other medications and if you have anything that we would call like a contraindication. So don't get a specific vaccine. That can only be addressed by talking directly to your health care okay. professional. So talk to your physician. That's the the bottom line when there's any sort of underlying issue, right? Even any underlying concern, if there's not a medical issue and you simply are are unsure, ask your physician. They're more than happy to help you with this. Okay, perfect. Here's one. Getting my first shot on Friday. So when will I be able to hug my grandkids? 
Yeah, so it loops back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, after the second shot, a, a week to 10 days after, you're, you're going to have pretty much full protection for yourself. That's great news. So the, the risk of you catching it goes down astronomically. The problem is there is a, a small possibility you could still pass the virus on to your grandkids. And more importantly, there is a possibility that if you get the virus, you're not going to get sick. That's the goal of the vaccine. But you can then pass that back on to other people in your cohort. So if there are other uh, older patients in your cohort who may not be vaccinated yet, you could be that vector that gives them the virus. So we need to ensure that everybody gets vaccinated who's at risk before we really start taking down those barriers of masks and physical distancing. Okay. Next one, I've been donating blood for over 30 years and I was tested positive for COVID-19 the first week of December. Now I'm recovered and feeling well. Can I go back to donating again? Uh, yes, uh, in fact, there, there, people would be encouraging you to do that because there, there are options perhaps uh, if you contact Canadian Blood Services about donating convalescent plasma that we use for, for therapies. Um, but I'm not entirely clear if it's six weeks, eight weeks, or 10 weeks after your, your COVID experience. So uh, please reach out to Canadian Blood Services, but absolutely, blood is safe to donate and absolutely critically needed. Yeah, I can verify that. I've already donated a couple of times through this COVID period, and it's very, very safe with Canada Blood Services, so for sure. Uh, it is, and it is Donations, unfortunately, have dropped yeah. because of the logistics of the virus. We need the blood, and, and especially the regular donors. Uh, they, they literally save lives every single day in Canada. Okay, Dr. Janney, if someone in the family receives a letter, they were in close contact with someone with COVID, does the entire family stay self-isolated or just the individual that has to self-isolate? Right. So right now it's just the individual unless you are exposed to one of the variants and then things can change. So it's more that if that person exposed develops the symptoms, then the whole family will have to self-isolate. But right now, if it's, for example, a school exposure, you get a letter that your child has had close contact, only your child has to self-isolate. The rest of the family can still continue to go to work and go to school. And can you give us a quick update? There's been in the news a lot, the variants. An update on uh, the variants and how serious they are within the province of Alberta? So we've got two variants identified in the province of Alberta. One is the UK variant. This is the one that we are seeing new cases every day. In fact, 20 to 30 cases over the last several, each day over the last several days. This is a variant that has taken a toehold, has community-level spread, and this is the principal reason, if not the only reason, that we've seen a delay in Phase 2 reopening. This is a variant that, again, in other countries has rapidly exploded and dominated the, the overall infectious disease burden, putting people in the hospital at even faster numbers than what we saw in November and December if it's left unchecked. The other variant we have seen is the South African variant. The good news there is we've had an, an initial cluster of a few cases, nothing since. So it looks as though we were able to identify, isolate, and stop the spread of that variant within the community. And now we have enhanced quarantine at the border. So we're hoping that we don't see any more of those. But the UK is unfortunately circulating in the general public now in Alberta. Thank you, as always, Dr. Janney. Always appreciate your time. You're welcome, guys. Take care. You too. That is Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Prof, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the U of C. 642 on the morning news. Stats Canada released a grim report on Canada's economy earlier this week. Uh, to talk about more uh, details and where we may be headed, we're joined by Kim Moody, CEO of Moody's Tax. Good morning to you, Kim. Good morning. 
Well, let's uh, put it in perspective. First of all, we are hearing the number of 5.4% when it comes to shrinkage uh, from Stats Canada. Uh, how uh, bad is that? That's pretty bad. I mean, I'm I'm certainly not uh, not an economist, but uh, I work with private business owners day to day, and and they're hurting. They're really, really hurting, and and it's that 5.4% is certainly evidence of that. Can we blame this all on the pandemic, Kim? Um, I think locally, no. Uh, I mean, we were certainly struggling going into the pandemic uh, for you know obvious reasons, but uh, the pandemic has certainly contributed massively to this problem. No question. You know, also hearing we hear that five point four when it comes to you know how much the economy shrank, but hearing that it grew by two point three percent during the last three months of the year, uh, move in the right direction. But I understand that is kind of meager in the grand scheme of things, isn't it? No, it certainly is. And again, locally, you know, in Alberta, when you have, you know, lockdowns that start in December, I don't think we've seen that number catch up with the reality. I mean, the economy, certainly from my pulse of it, took a massive decline in the last part of the year and the early part of this year. And I don't think uh, we've recovered. If we see some slight upticks, it would be rather modest in my view. Is there any way, Kim, to compare? I mean, obviously, they're massively different, but just sort of what happened with Canada's economy versus the United States through this, the same pandemic, but what happened in both countries? Uh, I think that, I think there's certainly some similarities all the way around. I mean, when you have lockdowns that affect private businesses, uh, that that is certainly going to contribute greatly to a, a slowdown in, in the economy. So that's the similarities. You know, the differences would be local. You know, how does uh, this lockdown versus that state's or province's lockdown impact uh, differently? But I think overall, I mean, when you shut down private businesses on the whole, that is going to have a massive uh, effect on the economy and, and, you know, a whole bunch of other impacts. Kim, yesterday we had the opportunity to speak with uh, financial educator Bruce Sellery, who is now the new CEO of Credit Canada, which is the oldest not-for-profit credit counseling service across the nation. And something that he alluded to was the fact that, you know, we do have, uh, you know, these government programs in place for individuals and businesses, for that matter. And we're seeing some of them extended, some of them starting to wind down, that we're going to actually see an aftershock uh, once these programs have all wrapped up. Do you feel the same way? No question. Absolutely no question. The the amount of stimulus that's been poured into the economy, in particular by Canada, has been massive. Uh, and some would argue, and I would be in this camp, that it's too much. Uh, but the problem is, is how much is too much and how much is too little? And uh, But when you look at the big uh, deficit numbers and the fact that these businesses are still struggling and people are struggling to find work, when you dial that stimulus back... Um, I think we're going to see a lot of bankruptcies and insolvencies, and it's sad. It's absolutely sad and horrible. Yeah. Is there there a way out of this, short-term or long-term? Well, (laughs) uh, long-term, I think we need to uh, certainly get people back to work, in my view. Uh, We have to find a way to get people back to work safely. You know, being cooped up in your home and working from home is is, uh, you know, works for some, but it doesn't work for the masses. And uh, I, I think we have to find a way to get people back to work uh, quicker uh, and safely, of course, but but quick. That's looking a big picture, Kim. But what do you tell your business clients? You know, are there any tips that they can do to, to help weather the storm? You know, 
know, that's a great question, and unfortunately there's not a great answer. Each one is different. Um, uh, <laughs> I know some, uh, there is just no way out, and so, you know, we, we offer them counseling to and put them in the right hands for bankruptcy and insolvency and, and debt relief, like probably uh, similar to your guest yesterday. For others, we look at, you know, wage subsidies, and uh, even though they're going to come to an end, and we know that, uh, but it, it really is different in each case, and it, it, frankly, it's sad. We thank you so much for your time this morning, Kim. Appreciate your insights. My pleasure. That is Kim Moody, CEO and Director, Canadian Tax Advisory, Moody's Tax, and you can go online for more information at moodystax.com. 909 HPV Awareness Day is tomorrow and there are some specific things that men and women can do to protect themselves. Joining us to talk about HPV and how it affects men specifically, we're joined this morning by Alberta Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Angel Chu. Good morning, doctor. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, can you break down exactly what HPV is? Yes, so HPV is a human papillomavirus, and it's an extremely common infection. It is actually one of the most common sexually transmitted infections in the world. And it's estimated that about 8 out of every 10 Canadians will have at least one HPV infection in their lifetime. Commonly, it causes genital warts, um, but it can also cause numerous types of cancers, including cervical cancers in women. But we also know that it can cause many other different types of cancers, uh, including in men as well. Okay, so we, we know that it's men and women. I know that years ago when I first heard the term HPV, it seemed like it was just a uh, something that women had to be concerned about. So when we talk about men being in the arena as well, um, does it uh, affect them equally when it comes to numbers of cases or is it uh, lopsided? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question, and you're absolutely correct. So in the past, we used to always think of HPV as being an infection that caused disease in women, especially with the cervical cancer risk. But we know increasingly uh, through statistics, unfortunately, that men are equally at risk of HPV infections and disease as well. And we know through Canadian Cancer Society statistics that HPV-related oropharyngeal cancers in men are actually rapidly increasing and approximating the numbers of cervical cancers that we see in women. And the scary thing about that statistic is that unlike cervical cancers, where we have excellent cervical cancer screening programs for women in the form of pap smears, etc., for men, all of these other HPV-related cancers, there is no such screening program. And the trends are alarming and very, very concerning. So how and and where does HPV present if you had it? Is it always sexually transmitted? Uh, It's usually uh, sexually transmitted. Um, So it's transmitted through skin contact. So any parts of the body um, that that have the virus on it can be transmitted to other individuals. So it doesn't necessarily need to be sexual contact, um, but it can be through skin transmission, which is why it is so extremely common. And because it's an invisible virus, those who have it don't actually know they have it. And through touching and through skin contact with another person, that's why it's easily transmitted. I, I know when I was discussing this earlier with, with Sue, I have uh, some young daughters, they're, they're teens now, but years ago, got the notice from the school, is it fine? Uh, do you consent to having the HPV vaccination to your kids? And I brought about a question here in the studio, which is, uh, is it just kids who are offered the vaccine? Do adults, uh, do they have uh, you know access to it? Or is this something you have to go out of your way for? 
Yeah, no, it's actually easily accessible. So you're absolutely correct. So um, currently in Alberta and across um, the, the country in Canada, we offer HPV vaccines in school-based programs just because that is um, the best target group for disease prevention because we want to catch them early before they're exposed to HPV. And in that setting, we know that HPV vaccines have about 99% efficacy at prevention of HPV infections. But even in the adult population, even if somebody already has had HPV infections or disease, it is never too late to vaccinate. And it is recommended even for adults, both males and females, to go ahead and get the HPV vaccine because it is still extremely beneficial for adults to be vaccinated as well. Doctor, is a vaccination forever? Uh, Yes, so currently we don't know that because HPV vaccines have been out since 2006. So, of course, nobody has, you know, a magic crystal ball to Mm -hmm. look into the future. But we know that since 2006, those individuals who have been vaccinated, so it's been, you know, about 15 years at least in the real world, plus the clinical trial data. So we know that HPV vaccines after the three-dose series have at least 15 years or more of solid data right. showing it's ex- maintained uh, continued efficacy. Okay. It's interesting to talk about a vaccination other than COVID-19 vaccine. <laughs> yeah. uh, but to, to that point, and to, and to tie to COVID, and I'm wondering, you know, during the pandemic, we've uh, had many doctors on the program who say that, you know, patients are a little reticent to maybe come into the office. So I'm wondering if, uh, you know, when it comes to dealing with HPV, if there's been a bit of a, a hurdle to accessing care during the pandemic. Absolutely. So unfortunately, um, as you pointed out, many uh, individuals are reticent to go into doctor's offices. But thankfully in Alberta, we are extremely fortunate because we have our pharmacist colleagues who are readily accessible and available to not only prescribe, but also to administer HPV vaccines. So for those individuals, whether it's males or females who are concerned about going into a doctor's office, you can pop into any pharmacy and um, ask and discuss the HPV vaccine to see if it's an option um, and a proper um, option for yourself. And that pharmacist would be able to inject and administer the vaccine for you. Let's face it, women are usually much better in uh, making sure that our health uh, care and, and checkups are up to date, our annual exams, etc. Are men, are you seeing more men come in and, and wanting to get this vaccine as sort of the word gets out that both men and women really need to be vaccinated against HPV? Yes, extremely. There has been a lot more focus and attention because I think there is a significant knowledge gap where, you know, not only women, but also healthcare professionals always just thought HPV was a disease in women with cervical cancer. But now as word is getting out and through international HPV awareness days, we're finding that more and more men are aware of the risks and they're being more proactive about their health, especially, you know, the concern with the rise in oropharyngeal cancers in mid-adult men are finding that more men are just coming in specifically asking for HPV vaccines and ways that they can protect themselves against the cancer-related risks. Well, HPV Awareness Day is tomorrow, so I'm wondering what goes on. Is this just a a, a huge information campaign or is there some interactive tools that people can access? Um, Yes, so there are um, many strategies. Uh, So it's international and it's in... um, 
uh, partnership. It's a global partnership led by the International Papillomavirus Society, and it's a global partnership of dozens of other organizations um, that have come together to try to combat and really eliminate HPV diseases, um, because to, in today's day and age, with such highly effective HPV vaccines and screening tools, we really do have the tools and the power to eliminate HPV infections and disease altogether. So this is a global effort um, in to join and combat HPV. And so there are uh, many, many media campaigns and awareness plans and uh, also social media sites and using various platforms to try to better educate and protect our population. And I just wanted to point out one of these stats that, uh, you know, as we were talking with you, you know, one quarter of respondents in Alberta believe that people in a monogamous relationship are not at risk of HPV infection. So we just have a couple of seconds, but, you know, whether you are monogamous or sexually active with multiple partners, you should get this vaccine. Yes, 100% agree with that. It doesn't matter. Um, HPV does not decide whether you're monogamous. It doesn't matter if you've had one partner or dozens of partners. It does not matter. You should still go ahead and get HPV vaccines and better protect yourself against the diseases. Thank you so much for joining us, doctor. Always appreciate your info. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. That's Dr. Angel Chu, who's an Alberta infectious disease specialist with the U of C. 843... March is Nutrition Month, and this year's theme is helping Canadians find their healthy with some tips and tricks. We're joined this morning by nutritionist Jennifer House. Good morning, Jennifer. Hi, Sue. Let's talk a little bit about it. What, what, what really, in your perspective, what's the point of having a Nutrition Month? Well, every March, dietitians in Canada, we celebrate Nutrition Month, just focusing on the importance of food and eating to Canadians. And every year there's a theme, and like you mentioned, this theme from Dietitians of Canada is good for you. Dietitians help you find your healthy. So we're focusing on the message that quote unquote healthy eating, it looks different for everyone, right? We recognize the role of culture, food food traditions, nutritional needs, personal circumstances. They all play in determining what's good for you as an individual. Jennifer, I I don't want to read into things, but you know, it's been a crazy year for all of us. I'm wondering if Mm -hmm. the 2021 edition of Nutrition Month has a little bit more significance and weight to it. It might be. I know in the during the past year, you know, we've all gone through a lot of changes in our life and we know that nutrition is important. And, you know, there's always misinformation out there, internet, social media, Netflix. But, you know, it's just not true that everyone needs to avoid gluten or should or mm-hmm. shouldn't eat meat, right? Like some people, these might be great ways of eating. For others, it will cause nutrient deficiencies, make life a lot less more enjoyable. So that circles back to find your healthy. How do we find our own personal healthy? What does that mean exactly? Right. Well, it's different for everyone. So it depends on our culture, dietary restrictions, religion, cooking skills, finances, time, life stage, so many things. So, you know, in my practice as a dietitian, I work to help make mealtimes more peaceful for families who struggle with picky eaters. Um, other dietitians specialize in sports nutrition, fertility nutrition, intuitive eating. So, you know, we're the trained, regulated healthcare professionals. So I would always suggest being a dietitian for, you know, that personalized nutrition advice. We don't just pass out the food guide like, you know, I hear the common myth out there. Yeah, I saw a very interesting quote from one of the Nutrition Month spokespeople in dietitians named Julia Liber, who said, as dietitians, our role has less to do with instructing and more to do with listening. I found that interesting. So tell us what's meant by that. Um, Absolutely. I agree with her. You know, we go to school. 
school, university, you learn all of this nutrition information. But when it comes to working with people, um, a lot more counseling skills are required. And we do have to take the time to learn all about their background before, you know, we pass out any advice or any recommendations. We need to make sure it's actually useful and doable for the client. And like I mentioned, there's so many factors that go into that and our backgrounds are all different. So I know with this, with this being, you know, uh, the month that we need to really start thinking about it, just kind of get it more mm-hmm. into our minds. I know there's a free recipe ebook, some other resources of, that you've, you and all the dietitians across the country have made available to help us get there. Right. So that's at www.nutritionmonth2021.ca. There's an ebook with 15 recipes and you can also learn more about dietitians or find a dietitian if you're interested on that website. Good stuff. Thank you so much for the information, uh, Jennifer. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks. That is Jennifer House, a nutritionist. And again, as mentioned, nutritionmonth2021.ca for more. And if you have a picky eater at home, as Jennifer mentioned, she's got her own website, firststepnutrition.com. Oh. I'm going online there because I still have the pickiest 11-year-old just, eater at home. Just eat uh, something. Would it, you please? Anything, please. How are you still al- than, alive? Other than pasta with butter and salt.